We're happy that you're with us. If you're new or visiting, welcome. Thanks for spending time worshiping with our community today. My name is Matt, if I haven't met you. And two weeks ago, we started a conversation about the biblical concept of justice. Justice, both as an integral part of God's character and as an important part of the life of the church. And I want to begin that conversation today and really over the next couple of weeks. But today, as we begin reading a tiny book of the Bible called Philemon. Philemon is the New, text, New Testament text that is assigned for today in the lectionary. So we are going to take this opportunity to explore a book of the Bible that I wouldn't naturally choose to explore. This, again, is one of the benefits of the lectionary. It forces us into some uncomfortable conversations, and this is one of those. We are going to take this opportunity to explore a book that is so often ignored. I mean, when's the last time you read through Philemon? Anybody recently? It's not where I typically go when I begin reading our scriptures. And I think it sort of has this second-class status, especially among the Pauline letters, partially due to its size. It is much shorter than Paul's other letters. It's just a single chapter. I think it's a total of 25 verses. It's not the shortest book in the New Testament, but it is pretty close. So it's short. It also contains a lot less overt theology than some of Paul's other works. So it's shorter. It's less theologically dense, at least on the surface. And maybe it even receives less attention because it deals with some uncomfortable issues. It is dealing primarily with the issue of slavery. And it might even leave the modern reader wishing it was a little more clear in its condemnation of slavery. And so I want to spend a few weeks thinking about some of these issues. We're going to spend next week diving into more of the, the meat of the, the book, dealing with some of the specific content of this letter. But I want to spend today sort of setting the scene, dealing with some of these introductory matters, so hopefully we can begin to grasp what's going on and how this might be meaningful for us in our 21st century context. So let's begin reading Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, <clears throat> to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have Paul writing this letter from prison, presumably in the city of Ephesus. And together with his co-worker Timothy, he is working out verbally some of the ideas and arguments that he wants to present in this letter, this letter that he is writing to a fellow disciple of Jesus in the city of Colossae, a man named Philemon. Well, as we will discover as we read through this letter, Philemon also happened to be a slave owner. 
Now, taken alone, that fact is not all that shocking. Slavery was such a normal part of life in the Roman world. It was an accepted reality. It was built into the fabric of society. But what we're also going to find as we read Paul's letter is that Paul does have something to say about that accepted part of society. He's going to say something to Philemon, this slave owner in the church. So he writes him this letter, a letter that is delivered perhaps alongside that bigger letter that Paul wrote to the church there, the book that we know as Colossians. But this is the occasion for this smaller letter that, that has a very specific target audience. You see, one of Philemon's slaves, a man named Onesimus, has what his name actually means useful, Onesimus, which we'll come back to that later in this little short series. But Onesimus has made his way to Paul in prison. Now, we don't know the exact circumstances surrounding this meeting between Paul and Onesimus. Uh, it's possible that Onesimus is a runaway slave who makes it the hundred miles or so to the city of Ephesus, and maybe he's either intentionally seeking Paul out for help in his predicament, in this conflict that he's experiencing with his master, or maybe he ends up in Ephesus and by chance runs into Paul and thinks, whoa, well, Paul is a leader of the church. My master is a part of the Christian church. Maybe Paul can help me out with this difficult situation. So Onesimus is a slave. He's perhaps on the run, feeling that constant pressure and the anxiety associated with thinking, well, what is going to happen if I am found? Am I going to be safe? Apparently, as Onesimus interacts with Paul, though, he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. According to Paul, he becomes a really close brother in Christ, and so Paul decides to take this opportunity to write a letter to Philemon, Onesimus' master, and urge Philemon to a specific action in regard to his slave. So clearly the conversation here, today, next week, and maybe even the next week, we'll see if we extend it to three weeks, is going to center, center around this question of slavery, the slave-master relationship. So this is obviously going to be a heavy discussion. It is going to be uncomfortable at times, I think, but I also obviously think this is really important. Number one, because it's in our scriptures, but also the, the reality that slave, uh, slavery exists today. This is not something from the distant past. It's not something limited to the, the ancient Roman world. It's not something limited to 19th century American history, but slavery exists today, even right now around our globe. So it's an important conversation for that reason, and I am convinced that our scriptures including this little book in the New Testament, Philemon, but maybe more importantly, the entire thrust of the story that is being told throughout our scriptures. I believe it guides us in this issue and issues like this. So we are going to spend some time today looking at slavery at this point in history. We'll consider New World slavery, 19th century American slavery, a little bit in coming weeks 
um, as well as modern day slavery, which is so often completely off our radars. But again, we are going to spend today laying the foundation, and then hopefully we will have some helpful and challenging takeaways over the next couple of weeks. So are we ready? Let's get after it. If you've read your Bible from cover to cover, you are well aware that slavery is addressed. It's addressed explicitly and implicitly in a variety of literary forms. We find it in narratives, the story of God's people, which we will talk a little bit about. We find it in the letters in our New Testament. And the presence of this issue should not be surprising to us because our scriptures are reflective of real history. So, and I actually find this to be a comforting fact that our scriptures were not sort of inscribed miraculously by the finger of God and then just dropped at some place on the globe. But these are documents and letters that developed in a specific context in real communities as real people are struggling with really difficult issues and trying to work out what it means to follow Jesus in this context. So these are not contextless documents. They are responding to specific issues, issues that they have been impacted by in very real ways. And I think that actually, in my view at least, um, increases the reliability of our scriptures to me, that, that these didn't just drop from the sky, but that these sort of developed in, in this grassroots way. I find that to increase the reliability of our scriptures, but it also does make them quite challenging to deal with. And I think the real challenge when it comes to how the biblical authors treat specific instances of slavery and maybe how they view slavery in general, I think the challenge is that their treatment is often a little bit ambiguous. It's not always completely clear. And so we, we see this throughout the history of the church, that people have taken our scriptures and used it to actually support the practice of slavery. So often misquoting or misunderstanding the nuance and some of the critical components of biblical interpretation, many have quoted something like Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. We'll explore those statements from Paul in more detail next week, but in that letter, Paul instructs bond servants to obey and submit to their masters. And so some throughout the history of the church have used a thought like that to legitimize the ongoing practice of servitude like this. This is an ugly part of our heritage as the Christian church. The Bible can be used to argue for pretty much anything. All you have to do is take a thought and twist it a little bit, and you can pretty much argue for anything. But as New Testament scholar Craig Keener notes, when we find the Bible being used to prop up a system such as slavery, we can be sure that it is misunderstood and that it is being misapplied. So, while on one hand you find those who have argued for the moral acceptability of slavery, many, many others have insisted along the way that slavery is antithetical to the God of the Bible, that it is antithetical to a Christian worldview, to a Christian ethical framework. 
Many, many people have used our scriptures, the story told in our scriptures, to argue and support for abolitionism. In fact, Keener notes that U.S. slaveholders often didn't want their slaves to read the Bible to hear the gospel. Why? Because they understood, and rightfully so, they feared that if their slaves heard the gospel, they would begin seeing themselves as equal and would desire freedom. Because liberation from bondage, even physical human bondage, is a central part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I think that's quite revealing. And yet there are still passages in our Bible that might seem troubling or that might not go quite as far in renouncing the sin of slavery as we would hope and as we would expect them to. And as a result, you might hear at times that, well, slavery and Christianity, or slavery and religion in, and religion in general, they go hand in hand. If you have Christianity, you are always going to have slavery close at hand. And to be fair, the church... Christianity, we do have a speckled past in this regard. And we need to be honest about our dark history when it comes to this systemic injustice. And we hope to do that over the next couple of weeks. But in this conversation, we also do want to consider that the first century world, the book of Philemon, as we read this and understand the context of this issue, it is not even close to being just a religious problem. This was a human problem. It always has been a human problem. In, in the first century, it was widespread. Centuries before the first century, it was widespread. It was rampant throughout society. We, we see it in the writings of Plato. We see it in the writings of Aristotle. Aristotle wrote that uh, he was frustrated with those who believed that slavery was unjust. He was frustrated that, with those who thought slavery shouldn't be practiced. It was such an accepted part of society, not just within Christianity or religion in general, but culture-wide. And so there is ambiguity when we read our scriptures surrounding this issue. Now, a common solution to the perceived problem of this ambiguity in Philemon is to simply sanitize Roman slavery. Well, Roman slavery wasn't like New World slavery, so when we read Paul in Ephesians 6 instructing bond servants to obey and submit to earthly masters, that's not problematic, and it shouldn't lead to any discomfort for us because slavery in the Roman world wasn't cruel like what we are familiar with from America's history. Which, to be fair, there is some truth to the distinction. There are some important differences in how this institution worked out in that culture, but as we think about this, maybe some of those differences between the two ages aren't as exonerating as we would hope. So does that make sense? There are some important distinctions between slavery and these two ages, but I don't know that that completely makes this issue go away. And so I think it's important in this conversation that we explore Roman slavery a little bit to understand it, at least in an attempt to understand some of the situational possibilities that these characters in this letter find themselves in and 
maybe even ways in which they were restricted to a certain degree by their historical context. Because I also think it's easy for us as for, uh, 21st century Westerners, who are quite enlightened, of course, to easily cast blame on first century believers or to cast blame on Paul, because how can you not come out and in no uncertain terms denounce slavery and condemn Philemon for his practice of this? This is not a hard, a hard issue, right? It's quite clear. Slavery is immoral. It is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just come out and say that. Be clear about it. Uh, next week, we are going to explore maybe some of the reason Paul isn't quite as clear in his condemnation of slavery as we would hope, but we'll save that for next week. In an essay entitled Shooting an Elephant, George Orwell made this comment of some of his experiences while in India. He said, a story always sounds clear enough at a distance, but the nearer you get to the scene of events, the vaguer it becomes. It's very clear for us as 21st century enlightened Westerners to look back and think, well, it's a pretty easy one. You can sort of hit this one out of the park. It's not that difficult. Biblical scholar Scott McKnight has suggested that the same, what, what Orwell said here, the same could be said of Philemon for these reasons. This was a different age. Things that we take for granted today simply weren't even cognitive possibilities for many folks in the first century. This institution of slavery was such an essential part of the fabric of society that for folks in the first century to imagine another possibility, it wasn't even an accessible option to them. There were so many hurdles to overcome to even get to that point where you could imagine a world without slavery. So McKnight argues that slavery could be an example of this. But again, we can't simply gloss over this issue, saying, well, slavery in the first century world wasn't like slavery in the 19th century. There certainly were some differences. Sl slavery in the first century world, by and large, wasn't race-based. It was based primarily on class. Furthermore, you could gain freedom if you hit a certain age and jumped through the appropriate hoops. That was a possibility. Um, some even sold themselves into slavery because it was a way to sort of climb the social ladder. Maybe that was my only way to advance beyond this position that I have landed in in life. And another potential difference that some often point to is that slavery in the first century Roman world wasn't nearly as brutal as what we know from America's history. But, but I think to suggest that because there are instances from history where slaves in the ancient world maybe were treated in a more humane way. That, that doesn't at all mean that there wasn't also brutality. There was brutality in Roman slavery. Additionally, the, the notion of humane slavery, even if there is surface level good treatment, the very notion of humane slavery is a contradiction that the terms are not compatible. 
If, as one historian defines slavery, it is by definition a means of securing and maintaining an involuntary labor force, an involuntary labor force by a group in society which monopolizes political and economic power, even if there is surface level good humane treatment, involuntary labor force, that is not humane. That is not what humans were designed to live with. Now, in the ancient world, this was all about status. This was your identity. What you spent your life doing was determined by where fate placed you on the social ladder. And so the common thought at the time was that, well, some people were simply born for this life. Some individuals, by virtue of their place on the social ladder, were born for slavery. This is what Cicero argued. Aristotle suggested that a slave is essentially just another tool, albeit a living and breathing tool, but a tool nonetheless that is essential, that is necessary for the proper functioning of both the household and society at large. They were property ultimately seen as inferior to their owners, inferior both morally and ontologically. There was something in their very nature that made them inferior to their owners. So again, this was not just a religious problem. This was widespread throughout society. Furthermore, even in instances where slaves in the ancient world received better treatment than maybe 19th century slaves in America, that positive, that good treatment was still utilitarian in nature the person was still a tool to be used. And owners began to realize, well, if I treat this tool that I own, if I treat them better, I am going to get more production. I'm going to get more efficiency out of them. So even good treatment on the surface still had evil and sinful motives. This person is a tool, and if I treat them appropriately, I can get something out of this relationship. That is not humane. So at its core, slavery is still built on the belief that some people are inferior to others, and thus it is acceptable to enslave, to use, to exploit, or maybe in our context, to simply become ambivalent about those individuals. And that is fundamentally incongruent with a Christian view of the world. So even if physical treatment wasn't as harsh, the attitude itself is sinful. It is sinful. It is evil. And the reality is that Roman slavery was often brutal. It could be brutal both physically, psychologically, sexually. It could lead to death. It wasn't like this was a walk in the park. It was a brutal institution. And we can't just gloss over that when we read about this in Philemon. We want to be honest about this in the conversation we have, admitting that followers of Jesus haven't always gotten this right. We have a speckled past from the beginning of the church until today. But we also, in this conversation, I think it's important to recognize that many abolitionist movements have been thoroughly Christian. The work of manumission has 
often, it has often been based upon our scriptures. Based not only on biblical doctrine, but also the overarching story told throughout our Bible that the God of the Bible is a God who delivers from oppression and slavery. We see this in the history of God's people. You know the story. They spent years and years enslaved in Egypt. Remember, they ended up there through Joseph and while living there, they experience success after success. They, they grow, they multiply, and according to Exodus chapter 1, they become exceedingly strong. Well, eventually Joseph dies. Another pharaoh comes to power who doesn't know anything about Joseph and the favor that he had, and all he sees is this group of people that are becoming strong, exceedingly strong, and he fears what might happen if they go unchecked, the upheaval that they might bring to the system in place. And so the only option this Pharaoh can imagine is slavery, forced labor, mass production of bricks, ever-increasing quotas that the people could never meet so that they're constantly suppressed and held down. But as we continue reading the story, what happens? God sees what's going on. God hears the cry of the people enslaved, and he's concerned about it, and he moves to act on their behalf. We read this in chapter 2 of Exodus, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God saw the people of Israel who nobody else saw as anything other than a tool. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God is a God who delivers from oppression, from bondage, even physical bondage. It's not just spiritual liberation. This is a central part of the story of God's people. This is a story that has given countless enslaved folks throughout the history of our world great hope in the middle of darkness. Stories like this, this is why U.S. slave owners didn't want their slaves to read our scriptures. This is a story that gives hope to those who are being oppressed. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann argues that Judaism is the, the only religion, and we could add to that Christianity by virtue of our roots being the Jewish religion. Judaism is the only religion with a book in their scripture called Depart. That's significant. This is a part of their identity, a part of their story of becoming a people and becoming a holy nation set apart for God and for the arrival of the Messiah. The God of the Bible is a God who delivers from slavery. From early on in the history of his people, slavery is something to be delivered from. It is something to expose as evil and something to overcome. A continued admonition as we continue reading the story for God's people in regard to how they treat others, how they treat those who are different than them, those who are exploited, what is it? It's 
Remember, this is your story. This is your story. You were in Egypt. Remember, this could be your story again in the future. So fight for those who are abused by these unjust systems. So, while we see some messiness given voice in our Bible, and we see that messiness throughout the history of the church, we also want to recognize that powerful people will always co-opt the Christian faith to turn it into something that it is not for their own interests. But that is always, it is always a deviation from the roots of our faith. Christianity has always been, and I think always will be if it is faithful, a movement among and a movement for the oppressed. This is central to the Christian faith, a movement among and a movement for folks who are oppressed. That's a reality that goes back to our Jewish roots out of which Christianity grew. God's people experiencing oppression near the beginning of their story and Our Bible stresses the incompatibility of God's design with that type of injustice. So slavery is not intrinsic to Christianity. Slavery is not a religious inevitability. Slavery is always, it is always a perversion of the Christian faith. So this is an idea that continues to develop as God's people continue to live their life and become the avenue through which the world's Messiah enters our lives. There is dignity from the beginning of our scriptures to the end of our scriptures, dignity given to humankind. We find it in the creation count, Genesis chapter 1. At the beginning of the biblical narrative, verses 26 and 27, God says, let us make man in our image. Just make man after our likeness. And that thought continues to develop throughout the story of God's people. We see it pop up again in the New Testament. James chapter 3. We went through the book of James last year. And in James chapter 3, where the brother of our Lord is warning about ungodly use of the tongue, ungodly speech patterns, he says this in verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father, And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. How can that be? You cannot bless God and curse people who are made in God's image. That is an incompatibility. There is dignity given to the the entire human race bestowed by God. So any notion of slavery, any notion of superiority is incompatible with our faith. We're going to return to this next week and continue this conversation. I realize that we only made it through three verses in Philemon today. But we are going to spend maybe the next two weeks, we'll see, maybe the next two weeks working through the content of this letter. Kevin, if you want to come up. We are going to respond to conclude our time today, as we do every week, around the table of our Lord. And I think this is so appropriate. in relation to the conversation we we are having. I, I think this is one of the truly beautiful things about gathering around this table. 
As a human race, we have a lot of differences. Even in this room, there are a lot of differences. There are racial differences. There are economic differences. There are social differences. There are differences in ability, just in our small group of people gathered here today. But as we come to the table, this table, the body and blood of our Lord, this is the great equalizer. With all of our differences, we all come forward. We partake the same body, the same blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is impossible for us to partake in this meal together week after week and to develop any notion of superiority. If we are doing that, we are profaning this table. This table is the great equalizer. Our differences don't disappear, but our differences are no longer an excuse for any idea of superiority. So as Christians, we always confess together with Paul that the dividing walls of a hostility have been demolished in Jesus Christ. There is no difference in class, race, economics, ability. There are no differences that give any human being superiority over another human being. All, 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 all humans possess dignity by virtue of being human. So any subjugation, any exploitation, or even simple attitudes of supremacy those are contradictions to Christianity. All right, I've got to save the rest for next week. Would you stand? We're going to join together around the table.